Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Thank you all for being with us today. It's a pleasure to see you all virtually, and I'm honored to speak with these wonderful authors sharing their take on our ongoing struggle here in the South on this issue that is near and dear to my heart and so many others, race and the monuments. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce each of our panelists. Karen Cox is an award-winning historian and history professor at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians. Her latest book, No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice, examines the long history of the monuments from those built after the Civil War to last summer's protests against them. Karen has written opinion pieces and shared her knowledge on Southern history and culture with media outlets from around the world. Karen, thank you for joining us. We also have with us Howard Hunter, who's the academic dean at Battery Park Country Day and teaches advanced placement European history. His book, Tearing Down the Lost Cause, The Removal of New Orleans Confederate Statues, explores the cultural history of New Orleans during the Civil War Reconstruction and Jim Crow through the removal of famous monuments in the city. Howard is the former president of the Louisiana Historical Society and currently serves as the academic sponsor for Let's Learn NOLA, a student-created and student-led summer camp focused on helping students expand their knowledge of history. Um, So as we begin, you guys, thanks so much for joining us. I know this is a a little bit different from what we thought, and I'm sorry that that we haven't had a chance to to be together in person. I'm hoping that if things calm down a little bit, we'll have that opportunity to do it. Um, And before we dive into the conversation around myths and consequences, I wanted to kind of get an understanding of the personal history and point of view each of you has brought to your audience through these incredible works that you've written. What inspired you to write about this subject matter, especially during what I believe to be an inflection point uh, in our nation's history? Um, Howard, why don't you go first and then Karen follow, and then we'll get on to the uh, conversation. Okay, first of all, I wish I were a sponsor for this camp, but I'm not, just to be clear. Uh, it It sounds just wonderful. Let me say, 30 years ago, I was a, a part-time graduate student, and I came across these immigrant regiments from New Orleans that fought for the Union. And I thought, this is kind of interesting, and went up to the National Archives. And, and what, what came out of this is that New Orleans really wasn't a, much of a Confederate city. This was a myth perpetrated by you know, elites after the war. It was, it was a divided city. It was, uh, it was, there was a critical mass of Unionists. There was a uh, there were class divisions and I wrote about it. And then later I wrote about uh, New Orleans becoming a Confederate city after the Civil War, kind of a you know, rivaling Richmond. Uh, and again, I just I, I, I think that those of us who are from here have been fed, you know, a lot of myths. I mean, there's a double whammy here. Not only was uh, New Orleans really Confederate white, but then you have the, the lost cause to go on top of that. Right. And so why did you just pick this time to write about it? Just because this is this this is the inflection point where monuments were coming down and it's something that you had studied for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd, I'd done a lot of a lot of work on it. And then James Gill wanted to write about the monuments. And I said, look, I'll give you everything I have. He said, no, let's do it together. And writing a book with James Gill is rather daunting. But well, uh, for the pu- for the public who's watching, who may not be from Louisiana, who don't know who James Gill is, why don't you guys give him a little taste of 
of, of James and his history. James uh, is from England. Uh, he came to this country to write about racetracks, and he ended up at the Times-Picayune as an editor, and then he's been a columnist there since 1979. He wrote a really great book on the history of, of Mardi Gras Carnival called The Wards of Misrule. So he had written about New Orleans in the, in the late 19th century when these, you know, when these monuments were, were, were going up. So we uh, decided to do this together. You know, I think we tried to write as honest of a book as we could. Yeah, well, you know, and I'll just give a little editorial comment here about James. He he is he has written a number of things about history, but he also is a columnist, as an opinion columnist, and a very biting one. Um, and he's a great satirist. Uh, and having yeah. been having been the point of his pen <laughs> a number of different times, I can tell you that he's got a fantastic sense of humor. So I commend I commend his writings to everybody who's listening. Karen, um, can you talk a little bit about? Um, why you chose to write this book and when you chose to write it, what significance you have, think you have at this inflection point in our history? Sure. Um, well, it's really great to be with both of you. And, and I want to thank the Mississippi Book Festival for carrying forward in a really difficult time. You know, I've been uh, wrangling with Confederate uh, memorialization for 30 plus years. And, you know, when I was working in the museum field and um, but really, I think what has happened in the years since the Charleston massacre is really like put me in a position to write publicly about Confederate monuments and memorialization and the United Daughters of the Confederacy's role in that. And so um, as I continue to write um, public facing pieces for the New York times and the Washington post, et cetera, and CNN, um, I actually started getting pressure from people to write the book. Um, But but when I decided I was going to do it, I really I took it very seriously. And uh, I really wanted to write this book uh, and provide something that would be useful to communities and useful just to people in general um, that, that help them and assist them in understanding what these Confederate monuments are about, um, the intentions behind them. Um, their their meaning for people in the broader community, including um, the African American community in particular. Um, I, I wanted it to be a, a resource uh, as well as a, a relatively comprehensive um, history of these monuments. And so, once I got started on it, I realized that the story uh, went beyond when they were placed, but uh, you could carry it all, um, forward all the way uh, to the present. And it's an ongoing, you know, discussion, obviously. Karen, I finished the book. I finished the book this morning and I and I wish we had it when we when we wrote ours. Well, Um, this is a this is this is a I don't know if you guys can see this. This is Karen's book. And then, Howard, this is yours for the folks who are are listening um, as well. And and it does. I've read both of your books and I, I like them both very much. And they both add uh, to a genre that I think is very important. But both of you spoke about this issue just a, just a minute ago. Howard, you you talked about, you know, feeling like you were lied to. Um, and Karen, you talked about wanting to make sure that people had a place to go to, to actually learn more about what we what we didn't think that, you know, was was really true. Um, and so I'm just I'm interested in this idea. I know the myth that this thing that this myth that has been out there and how it came to be. And Karen, in your book, No Common Ground, this is the second book in which you discuss the role that Southern white women specifically played throughout organizations such as the United Daughters of the Confederacy 
um, in sustaining white supremacist ideals through this lost cause myth. Can you walk us through how these women laid the foundation of this false history and how their actions and the lost cause myth has sustained over time? And let me just add this as Howard for you when you're listening. Um, you referenced Mrs. Behan, who um, was part of this effort and whose husband or relative, I think, was the mayor of the city of New Orleans at husband. the time that these monuments went up. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, husband. Um, yeah, so I'd, I'd like you all to talk about that a bit. And Karen, if you'd lead us off on that discussion, I would appreciate it. Howard, you can jump in. Sure. I think it's really important that, that people understand that white women were as much invested in white supremacy as, as their male counterparts in the South, especially among elite elite white people. And um, the United Daughters of the Confederacy just became this, uh, was really the second generation of, of white women involved in memorialization, the first being the Ladies Memorial Association. Um, and, um, and then the UDC in the 1894. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they could uh, move into the public realm of, of memorialization in the 1890s, given what was happening historically around uh, disenfranchisement and uh, racial violence. And so the UDC, as I wrote about them in the first book, was really monuments was just one chapter of that book um, because they they really had a, a wide ranging agenda. Um, and the way I understand the way I think about the UDC is this is an organization that doesn't look backward, but looks forward. It's like, what can we do to create uh, uh, memorials uh, either through monuments or to the preservation of the lost cause narrative of the South and for children uh, who are growing up in the region. And, and, and they're basically preparing uh, future white Southerners to take up a defense of things like states' rights and white supremacy and the like. And so that book looked at them, you know, very extensively and uh, no common ground looks at them again brings uh, brings this you know this fuller story of of uh, what they um, what they created because really what the UDC did was lay a found a blueprint a, a foundation for future generations of white southerners to take up the cause um, of Confederate memorialization or states rights or even white supremacy I mean you know, there was, you know, the, the textbooks that they had influenced in the South, for example, or, um, you know, trained uh, people, you know, they were being read in the 1970s. And even to this day, as you know, the, uh, that we have politicians who spout off uh, lost cause lines about the civil war was about states' rights and not slavery, et cetera. So in many ways, I think that these women um, did, uh, uh, an outstanding job. So they were so good at it that we're still digging ourselves out from under it. Yeah. Very good. Howard. You know, I, I what about this whole uh, problem of, of bereavement? You know, I'm not trying to give people a pass at all, but you know, the fact that, uh, you know, we have a population of roughly 330 million people and we've lost 600,000 to COVID and if you don't know somebody who's died, you know someone who knows someone. And here we have a, a country with a population of 31 million, and I'm not a mathematician, but if you 750,000 dead, that would be the equivalent of 7 million today. You know, and, and does that have anything to do with the fact that the lost cause, this myth, has had so much traction uh, and, 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 you know, it's, it's bad history, but 
does bereavement have anything to do with that? I want to ask Karen. Yeah, it, it may, but in, in your in your book, Tearing Down the Lost Cause, you discuss the psychology of revenge and how the yeah. need for vindication amongst white Southerners during Reconstruction boiled over, resulting in violent events such as the Battle for Liberty Place, which people seem to forget. But yeah. can you explain this to, this psychology to us and, and how it further allowed for the manis- manifestation of the lost cause and and then kind of talk to us about whether you think those monuments were a direct form of revenge for yeah. white Southerners who were, who were Confederates? Well, I think the, um, first of all, New Orleans was a, a, because it had surrendered, a lot of Confederate veterans came into the city after the, after the war. Uh, and psychologists talk about how, you know, humiliation or the, the fact that A, New Orleans surrendered, B, the South was defeated, that this can lead to uh, this kind of what, what they call narcissistic repair, this need for revenge. So immediately in 1866, you have 200 Confederate veterans that are deputized. Uh, they had also taken over the police. And there was an attempt at Mechanics Hall right off of Canal Street, where the Roosevelt Hotel is, right. to amend the 1864 Constitution and give black males the vote. So they so the they went there and they killed 46 blacks and uh it was a it was a it was a it was an orgy of sadism really an atavistic sadism so that was the first example of of this kind of this this vengeance and and this led to congressional reconstruction and then of course there's liberty place or also called the battle of canal street or the battle of september 14th 1874 where the where the Crescent City White League uh, staged a, uh, tried to stage a putsch to overthrow the Republican government uh, and fought the Metropolitan Police. And, uh, you know, in a 10-minute battle, 31 people dead. Uh, and uh, the, uh, they, you know, they, they declared victory and put in the Democratic gover- government under McHenry. But then the federal troops came in three days later, reinstated reinstalled the, the, the Republican government. But this became kind of a, uh, in, in the long haul, this became a matter of honor, you know, and, and it was a treasonous act. And, and Justin Nystrom from Loyola University wrote a real good piece comparing Liberty Place to January 6th. And, but it went down in, in New Orleans lore as this, you know, this, this uh, great, you know, victory for the people. Right. When, when in fact it was treason. Well, no question about it. Um, it sure does feel like, you know, what we're going through today is starting to mirror the the undoing of Reconstruction. The same thread seems to run through it. But Karen, you you talked a little bit about your book about actions taken and lessons learned and imparted to us by black Americans who stood up and challenged the momentum of the Confederate monument um, buildings. And um, but also the larger lost cause. Can you talk about this counter story? That was brought to us by courageous Black Americans. Um, that has pushed us to the progress that we're seeing today. Sure, you know, I think this is one of the things that I, you know, worked very hard to detail in No Common Ground because I felt like the story of monuments had only been from one side of, you know, uh, the coin, and I wanted us to understand, you know, how Black Americans had pushed back against Confederate memorialization and specifically monuments. And it, it goes all the way back to the 19th century, of course, sure. with people like Frederick Douglass calling the monuments of folly. 
Um, but also, really, it's the people on the ground. It's the lo- black Southerners who are the ones that really should be credited with that. And and uh, whether it was uh, black newspaper uh, editors like John Mitchell Jr. in Richmond, Virginia, who uh, decried the 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 major monument to Robert E. Lee going up uh, on Monument Avenue in 1890 to just uh, uh, black Southerners riding into the Chicago Defender in the 1920s and and 30s who were saying that these monuments were about treason. I mean, they were very, very clear about that. Um, And then, you know, in the civil rights era, you have um, as people, you know, the place where you need to go vote are usually at the local courthouse. And so uh, in some ways, what what these African-Americans were doing was was uh, reclaiming the space that these monuments held. Um, And um, and you see it, it continues. It continues once, you know, the Voting Rights Act is passed, you begin to see um, the election of black local black officials, and those officials begin to challenge things like the monuments on the grounds of, of courthouses uh, or flags even uh, flying next to the courthouses. And so um, the thing uh, that I think sometimes people, uh, critics will say, oh, the only reason that, you know, we we're um, debating Confederate monuments is because of Black Lives Matter. Um, those those protests started in 2014, but they go back more than a century. Um, of course, it really sped up after the Charleston massacre and, and obviously uh, Charlottesville. Um, and so they've been at the forefront, um, but they haven't. I think that the problem has been is that uh, no one was listening to black voices and uh, now and i think they are uh more than ever on this issue well i can speak directly to that when we began the process in new orleans of taking down these monuments there were many many people many white people who were not from the city that felt the need to opine about what the people of the city of new orleans want to do with their property but there were some people in the city that didn't want them down many of whom were white and i I can remember so many of uh, my constituents who are really angry at me would say something like i don't know anybody who is in favor of taking those monuments down. And I said, again, say that one more time. You don't know anybody. And I said, I, and I'll re, I'll, I said, I'll read you the whole history of it, but the fact that you don't know anybody that's not in favor of those monuments says a lot about who yeah. you speak to, what you know, and what you know about our history. But I wanna, I wanna uh, get you guys to talk about something that you may have a disagreement about, I'm not sure, but, but Karen, the title of your book is No Common Ground. Um, And it speaks directly to the theory about there being no common ground when it comes to the monuments. Can you take us through this stance? And Howard, I want you to speak about, you talked a little bit about not giving people room, but about bereavement. And maybe there's another way to do it instead of taking them down. I'm not sure if I'm I'm misquoting or paraphrasing what your position is. I don't want to do that. But I want to talk about whether or not there is any common ground. And Karen, what your thesis is about no common ground um, on this particular topic. Yeah, well, no common ground for me has a double meaning. It is a no common ground in terms of, you know, what people's perspective on the meaning of the monuments. If you're a defender, you're a defender. If you want them gone, you want them gone. There's not a lot of in-between there. Um, And no common ground also refers to the actual ground. Uh, of courthouses where the vast majority of these monuments are, or you could say anywhere in the, in the public square, whether that wherever they might be on Monument Avenue or um, Lee Circle, the former Lee Circle. Um, mm. And uh, and so that's what it is. It's about this fact that there's no common ground there. Um, 
I believe, um, you know, my belief about what happens to monuments is, is has to do, I believe that communities must make those decisions mm. um, and that, uh, but there need to be a, a plurality of stakeholders who are brought to the table on that. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes change is hard, as you know, Mitch, uh, <laughs> and in taking these things down. Now, you know, um, Howard asked me a minute ago about bereavement. I think that bereavement um, was a legitimate uh, reason for some of these monuments going up. But I think that what you see is that um, in that in those early years, it makes sense. Those those first monuments went in cemeteries. That's where the bereavement oftenly occurs. And and those and and going back to these um, to these cemeteries and. Uh, on Confederate Memorial Day, maybe laying flowers and things like that. But each new generation infuses these monuments with new meaning. And, and that meaning, uh, as, as generations went on, was about white supremacy. Uh, one only need to read um, the um, Confederate Memorial Day speeches or monument unveiling speeches to have a real, real clear-cut understanding of the meaning and intention. Yeah. Howard, I, let me let me let me poke you here a second. I, I liked I liked all of your book. I like the history more than more than James's opinions. But uh, I generally <laughs> I generally liked it all. But I do take issue with one thing. The, 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 the biggest problem y'all seem to have with the, my approach was that I, I was so I felt so certain. And as you know, I gave a I gave a fairly um, detailed speech about why I took the monuments down. But to remind you historically that that speech was actually given as a uh, bookmarker to the speech that was given by Charles Fenner on the day that the monuments were put up. And his speech was about three hours. Right. <laughs> and he was, and he was far more certain. Mine was only 18 minutes, but I actually, I actually gave that speech intent for a lot of different reasons, but intentionally so that years from now people can bookend both of those speeches and determine which view of history was more correct. And as you noted earlier, the the head of the Daughters of the Confederacy happened to be the mayor's wife, the mayor who who was a Confederate soldier. And so one of my theories was, wow, it was so easy for them to put that up because they had agency and they had power. And of course, as you know, there were many African-Americans living in New Orleans at the time the monuments were put up and they had nothing to say about it. And yet it took us three and a half years about to take those monuments down um, with seven lawsuits, 13 judges, hearings on the city council, the state legislature, and an appeal to Congress and the presidency himself. And so I'm wondering when you're right about um, the monuments and saying that each of them embodies their own stories and mirror the city and the times and attempt to take a balanced stance on the issue of finding common ground, how do you respond to Karen's um, assertion that, you know, on the issue of whether they should be in places of reverence as opposed to memorials like um, like a cemetery. Um, yeah. do, you, do you think that there's common ground or what's your argument going I, forward, given this, given the condition that we're in now? I talked to James about this. And, and uh, the fact is, the people we interviewed, there was no common ground. I, I wonder, you know, there, I've talked and this is all anecdotal is the problem. And I talked to Walter Isaacson about this. And he talked about how there were a number of people who were 60, 40 for keeping them and then changed their mind for taking them down. I think the evidence is clearly with the with the argument for taking them down. But I wonder if there can be common ground for finding a new place for them. And what's really interesting is since those monuments have gone down, it's been a non-issue. And I've gotten to the point, you know, Liberty 
should have been blown up years ago. I really don't care about Lee and Jefferson Davis, but I would like to see Beauregard put in a, in a, in a, in a proper place. And I wonder if there can be common ground for that. Yeah. Um, it, that, that's interesting. You know, my, my thought on it was a little bit more new. Well, it's, it's clearer. And in some instances, it's more nuanced. And Karen, I agree with you. And I think I enunciated this in my speech. I said, they need to be, if you're going to remember somebody, you need to remember them correctly. And you need to remember right. them in the right place, not in a place of honor, not on a public square. I don't think there's any common ground from this perspective that asking an African-American in the South to walk up courthouse steps that's adorned with a statute of heroism by a guy that thought that they should remain enslaved for the rest of their life it does give you a lot of confidence in the criminal justice system in the United States of America, which is not to say that maybe you shouldn't remember that person in the cemetery. I think that things like that you can do. But uh, for me, these monuments have a much deeper meaning and are directly related to this myth that somehow, you know, the, the, the Civil War was really not about states' rights and slavery. You know, it was it was about something else. And I think that that's wrong. But I mean, it just leads us into, you know, as in this particular place. And we'll, we'll try to close out with your answers to this question. We are at an inflection point clearly right now. We are doing this um, recording in uh, that's going to be shown in October of 2021. We're still dealing with the insurrection. We're dealing with the issues of um, the involvement that police have with their communities. Race continues to be um, really kind of an existential threat, um, as Theodore Johnson argues in his book. And I'm wondering, as we move ahead as a nation and hopefully closer to our founding promise of liberty and justice for all, what impact do you wish for your book to make amongst the readers that's going to lead the nation to a better place. Um, Howard, why don't you go first and Karen, we'll let you close us out. I, I think that, I think that history is complex, but it's something that we need to look at honestly. And I think the book is really a narrative of a city that has not done a very good job in, in, in looking at its own history. And, and how did you, how would you recommend that the city go forward to do that better? I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, think about it. And you, you have, yeah, so you, you have, you have more work to do. That's your homework. Um, <laughs> Karen, Karen, why don't you, why don't you round us out uh, for, for this talk? Well, you know, I think that I really wrote this book as best I could so that in, it could be picked up by anyone. It could be understood by anyone yeah. from a student to, to, um, you know, community organizations that are uh, grappling with this issue. I, I think that I hope, that you know by if if people can understand the fuller story uh not just the one-sided narrative we've had for a century and a half um that maybe you know they they could see try to begin to see how the complexity of the issue why this is offensive to people of color particularly african americans and hopefully bring them to a place where they can have some community conversations I think that one of the things, as we all know, that we are so divided that we can't even have a conversation, a civil conversation. And I'm hoping that through a book like like mine, at least if we could you know, get people to read that, they would understand how complex the issue is, but also understand that this didn't pop up overnight. Um, we've been dealing with it for a long time. And and, uh, you know, hopefully those conversations will will move us beyond um where we are right now. Well, I think that's, I think that's very well said. How did you want to add something? 
yeah, I just I think I think I think honest history is a start, and 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 looking at a looking at a broad view rather than something that just feeds someone's uh, you know narrow partisan uh, worldview. Yeah, I'll tell you a, a funny story. After I wrote my book, my mother, who is uh, 88 years old, um, a couple of weeks ago, said to me, she goes, you know, since you're my son and you wrote that book, I'm assuming that, you know, what you said in that book is true and accurate about the history. I said, yeah, I think it's pretty accurate. And she said, well, you know, they never taught us any of that when I was a little girl. So, Karen, it reminds me just in your book um, about the story of the Daughters of the Confederacy. And I have this hope and dream because I think that white guys over 50 are really, really hard to get to. Um, they're not yeah. impossible. I don't, Howard, I don't know who you are, but I'm, I'm 61. So I'm I, can, I, can talk about, I can talk about old white guys. <laughs> but I just have this dream that the daughters of the daughters of the Confederacy are going to help lead us to <laughs> this vision of, of, of a better tomorrow. And Karen, I know you're right about that. Both of you have given us um, a really good piece of work for us to chew on that's going to be very helpful to the country. I want to thank you for that. Thank you for joining us in this very provocative conversation. And thanks to the Mississippi Book Festival for hanging in there um, and doing everything you can under the most difficult circumstances to bring great conversations like this to all of the folks that are listening. I hope you guys have a great day. Thanks so much. Thank you. you. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.